Stop letting your stuff own you. Find out how on today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Social Pilot, the social media and marketing tool for bloggers and small businesses. Join over 20,000 social media pros at servenomaster.com backslash socialpilot today. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now. Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. The impetus for today's episode, it comes from a couple of different places. I read a blog post about uh, five or six years ago about minimalism, and I found it very fascinating. And I really wanted to learn to live the minimalist lifestyle, and I find it interesting. And some of the questions he posed are things that I've thought about for a long time. Now, unfortunately, that blog has gone in a totally different direction, so I can't point you to it because that person's matured into another direction. Now he writes about other stuff, which is fine. We all grow and mature and Certainly my blog posts and content and my, these podcasts will change over time. But there's a simple way to measure who's really in control in your life. And that is this. Have you made a decision based on stuff? Have you made a decision where you can't do something because of the things you own? Oh, I can't go because of this. Now, for some people, and this is going to be a little bit edgy, it's a pet. I know a lot of people who have pretty terrible lives because of their pets. I have a friend who's an animal hoarder. His life is terrible. His house smells horrible. His kids are sick all the time. And he has dozens of pets. Way too much. This isn't about that. I know people who have one dog. And that dog means they can't do what they want to do anymore. And you're stuck. Now, if you love the dog and loves you back, at least you're getting something back. At least the dog's alive. And that's something to think about. Oh, I really love to travel, but I can't because of my dog. Your dog becomes a limitation. And this is something that I had to think about. This is the reason that I didn't own a dog in my late 20s. I knew from when I was 29, when I lost my job at the university, that I wanted to travel full time. I wanted to build a business that would allow me to do what I do now. And I knew that dogs live forever. So I said, I can't have a dog for right now. Even though I love dogs because I'll end up in a situation where I either got to give them up for adoption or give them to a family or something. It's, it's going to become a problem. I won't be able to travel. I take care of my dog. So for a long time, I didn't have a dog. Now I have a dog. Now I have a wonderful golden retriever. He's a great swimmer. I love hanging out with him. He's a real blast. Biggest dog I've ever owned. He's a monster. I always had small dogs before, but this guy's a real monster. But I knew that if I had this dog five years ago, then my life wouldn't be where I'm at. I, if I had a dog when I was 30, I wouldn't be married right now and I wouldn't have two kids right now because I wouldn't be able to travel. It would have become a limitation. But people do the same thing for stuff. Oh, I can't travel. My house has too much stuff in it. Or, oh, I can't move. I have too much this. And some of the things, it's because we have sentimental value. My diplomas on the wall, pictures of my family, on the wall, all these things. And they begin to have power over us. And they control our decisions. How about this? You have something you haven't used in a long time, but you continue to invest money in keeping it there. And it becomes sending good money after bad. And we all have little things like that. Do you need that extra storage room or using it effectively? Are there other ways to use your space? If you got rid of your stuff, could you move into a smaller, cheaper apartment, have a little more breathing room? Some of us work extra hours to pay for a larger abode to provide room for stuff, not even room for another person. You have to have that second bedroom because it's filled with our stuff. So it comes from initially uh, sentimental value. Now, sentimental value means it has no value. 
Sentimental value means it means something to me, but it doesn't mean anything to someone else. So it means our only value is imaginary. Now, I have things that have sentimental value for me, but I know that they're imaginary because they only come from within my mind. They're something that I create from within my mind. They're not something from reality. If I was to show you five items on a desk, five different rings, and one was my parents' wedding ring and the other four I'd never seen before, you wouldn't be able to guess which has value to me. You wouldn't be able to guess which ones I can recognize and which ones I can't. Therefore, it's a creation of my mind, just like emotions or thoughts, it comes from within my mind. The value isn't real. The value doesn't exist in the real world. Real value means I can sell it for what I think it's worth. Sentimental value means it's worth more than what I think it's worth. So when I want to sell it, I charge a premium to cover the cost of the real value and my imaginary feelings. My feelings are expensive. This is why you watch those shows where people find something in their house and they have to sell it or pawn it and they're always shocked by how low it's worth. That's life. That's just the way it goes. And we have things in our life that have a great deal of sentimental value. But if you think about it, they really don't. What if I need it is this mindset of what I don't need it now, but I might someday. What if I want to look at these pictures of my kids in 20 years? Ooh, that's a tough one, didn't I? I touched on a nerve. I'm someone who's got young kids. I don't take a lot of pictures of my kids. When I was younger, in my early 20s, even in my mid-20s, I took loads of pictures of everything that was going on around me. I was a picture guy. Now I'm not. I'd rather watch my kids and take pictures. And don't get me wrong, my wife takes a lot of pictures and we do take some pictures, but I'm not, I, don't, I never look at them again. The only reason I take pictures is to send to members of my family. I don't see myself being someone who is 60, 70, 80 looking at pictures of their child in a photo album. But hey, guess what? Doesn't matter because now you can take digital photos they don't take up space. Keep it all in the cloud. So it's no longer a physical thing. So this debate is moot. But we end up with all this stuff that we say has sentimental value. It means something to me. And this is stage one of hoarding. Because hoarders say one of two things. Hoarders either say it's important to me or I might need it someday. Those are the two reasons people hoard. If you watch those shows, you read those books, that's what they say. Animal hoarders, they say I'm saving the animal. It's a different thing, okay? I don't want to talk about my crazy friend with all the cats. That's a different topic. But the idea that we keep something in preparation for a rainy day that is so unlikely to happen, well, that's when you start moving closer and closer to craziness or insanity. Now, there are certain valuable things for emergencies which are worth having. Having a first aid kit, having a fire extinguisher, having a go bag, if you're a believer in conspiracy theories, fine. Those are all things that are for a serious emergency. But do you need an extra thousand hangers in case there's a hanger emergency? Do you need a broken hockey stick in case someone needs a broken hockey stick? That's the difference. And that's where, again, it comes into where's the value in this. And it's hard for people to assess value when they have too much sentimental mindset and not enough practical mindset. That's where you turn into hoarding. It's the ratio of reality to sentimentality. But your stuff starts to take ownership of you. Oh, I can't move because of this couch. I can't sell the couch because I take a loss. I bought this couch for $2,000 last year. I have to sell it for $800. I can't move. I can't go to Hawaii anymore. Now, that sounds crazy unless it's happened to you. And that's a real conversation I've had with multiple people. Oh, I can't travel. I'd have to sell my car and take a loss. We are afraid of the fear of loss. The fear of loss is so powerful. And this is why people lose money in casinos. Now, my wife grew up so poor that she's never encountered a casino before. She's been outside of one. Okay, She's walked past one, but she's never been inside one. So we're recently talking about it. And I have a very specific approach to casinos. And I have some personal rules about gambling. I never gamble against someone who has a nicer house than me. That's my first rule of gambling. If you go into a casino, there's a reason they're so nice inside. They're so big. 
Casinos cost a billion dollars in America. A Las Vegas strip casino to build one of those is like a billion dollars. That's a lot of money for one building. They got lights and technology and all those computers everywhere and thousands or tens of thousands of employees, croupiers and security guards and lifeguards and everything in between. All these restaurants and all this nice stuff and they give you free booze. It's not good booze, but they give you free booze. People go into a casino, they start playing blackjack. They go, wow, they're giving me free booze. And it's like, well, they're trying to mess with your decision-making skills. But the reason people lose so much money at casinos is the fear of loss. When someone starts losing money, that is when their betting gets dumb. Whenever we move into an area of variance, and this is where my math nerdiness side will reveal itself a little bit, that's when we start to make riskier decisions. For example, let's talk about me, because I do gamble a little bit. I've gambled in my life less than 10 times, in a casino five or six times. I only play one game, and that game is craps, and that's because you're playing against other people. Uh, the odds of you winning in craps are around 49%. Other games, it's closer to 40%. So the odds are against you, but they're the closest it can be to 50-50. It's the closest you can almost, you could almost win. You can't. If you play craps for your entire life against a casino, you'll eventually lose everything. Over time, your result always turns into zero. That's why they do everything they can to get you to play for as long as they can. But I play very conservatively. I don't bet up or down. I bet the minimum on every single roll. I never play by myself. I don't enjoy playing by myself. I usually go with other people joint venture partners or business partners. That's the only time I gamble. And I go, fine, let's play craps. Because it's a social game. And it's usually like 2 or $3 a roll. I've never lost money in craps because I'm very cautious better. But what happens is when you start to win, and this ha has happened to me, there's a lot of these bets in the middle that are like one out of 64, one in 10,000 chance of happening. And you start to throw a dollar on each one of those. When I'm up, when I've doubled my money, I start throwing, I get a little bit loose. I'm like, hey, I already won. And I'll start throwing a dollar here and there on the riskier bets. So you become a little bit risky when you started winning. But when people start to lose, they start to go crazy and make very illogical and poor decisions. When people lose, they double. They go, hey, I just lost $10. If I bet 20 and win the next one, I win, ba I win back my money. They're no longer trying to get to win. They're trying to get back to zero. People trying to get back to zero act very differently. If you've ever gambled and you probably have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our behavior changes when we're dealing with fear of loss. I've lost and I need to recover my loss. If I give you a $100 bill and I said, hey, give me back 90, I changed my mind. You'd be like, man, I hate you. But if I just hand you 10 bucks, you go, wow, thanks. It's better to give a small amount than to give a large amount taken away, even though your end result's the same. In either case, you got 10 new dollars in your pocket. The experience is very different. This fear of loss, it's why we hold on to things that are worthless, why we hold on to poor investments, why we stay in jobs we shouldn't do, why we spend more money, good money after bad, because we keep waiting for it to pay off. And part of this is also the desire to be consistent. We are completely controlled by our need to be consistent. And this is something that is very, very, very easy to manipulate. I know this because I spent a long time doing it. When I was younger, 10 years ago, I used to teach dating secrets. I used to teach men and women how to date really well. And the big secret that I invented Okay, I'm going to reveal it to you right now, which changed lives, led to marriages, and changed the course of many people's destinies is a single sentence. I developed something so powerful, and it's based on this concept. Every time I walk up to a woman in a bar, or a woman in a bar, whenever I want to talk to a new woman, I would say, wow, everyone in London is so friendly. That one sentence changed every interaction. Here's why. The person always responds, what are you talking about? Most people here aren't friendly. And I then say, well, aren't you friendly? The moment someone says yes to that, they have to be friendly. They've now trapped themselves. As crazy as it sounds, 
All this does is give you more time on the field. Now, if you're horrible, <laughs> it will make up for it. But if normally someone will talk to you for five minutes before walking away, suddenly they'll stay for 10 or 12 just because you've said this one sentence. Now, if you're really listening closely, this is something you can use in networking and business. You can walk up to someone. And one of you is going to do it to me. I know it because it's so effective. You can walk up to someone at a conference who's like the speaker and be like, wow, everyone here is so giving. And the guy will go, really? Well, aren't you giving lots of people all of your time and really helping people? And they'll go, oh yeah, I guess I am. Because you're giving them a compliment, you're trapping them with a compliment, they will now listen to more of your dumb questions. Or if they're good questions, they'll listen to your good questions too. God, I'm sure someone's going to do this to me next month. Because it works. Even knowing what it is, if you do it to me, it will work on me. It works on everyone. If you get someone to say there's something, they'll then act like it. And it works in the other direction too. There was this TV show that, ah, God, it failed. It's one of many TV shows where they never told you what the secret is. I think it was called... Not the event. Maybe it was called the event. It's one of those shows where you're waiting to find out about this time travel thing happened at the end and then it got canceled. But it had this great scene with this fat guy with a cigar and he's like interrogating someone or something and he starts talking and I wish I could remember everything he says. I'm sorry that I don't remember it perfectly, but it's really, the actor and the scene were really well done. I remember great scenes. He's smoking a cigar and he goes, I smoke cigars because I'm a villain. He goes, anyone, like, anyone who smokes cigars in movies is a villain. It's pretty accurate, actually, right? It's, pretty, it's an older thing, not as much now, but a lot of movies a little older, you'd always see that. The moment he says he's a villain, he can then act like it. He's justifying his behavior. Hey, I'm a bad guy. And in real life, people do the same thing. People go, oh, I'm this. And once you say it, you then act like it. So we have this desire to be consistent. That's what I'm circling back to. And so we say, I bought this, whatever it is. I bought this exercise machine. If I sell it, it means I'm giving up. Oh, who hasn't done that? Who doesn't have an exercise machine in their house? They haven't used. The average length of time people use an exercise machine that they buy from an infomercial is six months. And let's be honest, those people are lying. It's probably two months. How many of you or your parents bought a Nordic track? Mine sure did. Now, my dad actually used it for a really long time, but my mom quit after a few months. So my dad was the outlier. He doesn't use it anymore. I'll tell you that. He's got a treadmill now. He's actually switched to just a treadmill. And he does run every day. My dad's kind of an exception. He's a much better exerciser than me. My dad's a much more athletic guy than me. He was all a professional baseball player, amazing athlete. I'm hoping that my son will be that too, that it skips a generation, but he's very consistent, but he's an outlier. So most of us, we buy something, even though we never use it, have no value in it, we stay with it. And you say, why don't I want to get rid of this? It's because we don't want to admit that we made a poor decision in the past. We don't want to admit that the way we described ourselves was wrong. I'm a martial arts guy. I'm a snowboarding guy. I'm a horse riding guy. We try these hobbies, we buy this stuff, and we start to feel consistent. Then we realize we hate it. We don't want to sell this stuff because it will be admitting defeat. Is selling that couch really admitting defeat? Well, these are the emotional reasons why we won't give up the stuff that we don't need. So let's ask a few questions. When was the last time you wore it? Look at your clothes right now. How much of your stuff is something you haven't worn in the last six months? Now, this is a test I've used for a long time. And unfortunately, it has caused me to throw away some stuff I need. Because I live on the beach, it's just happened to me. When I was in Thailand, I needed a pair of pants and a pair of shoes like nice shoes. I don't have any of those because where I live, I never need those. But I travel twice a year, so I do need them when I travel. So now I have a pair of pants and a pair of nice shoes. And I'll even bring them with me when I go to America next month. But most of your stuff you can look at. I remember looking at my drawers in my mid-20s, and I had clothes that I hadn't worn since I was 14. I do not wear clothes with words on them anymore. I have one shirt, who you catch me wearing it. I still have one shirt that has like designs and stuff on it. The rest of my shirts are flat color. In fact, I'm wearing one right now. It's light blue. I bought this shirt in, I think, 20 colors, 10 or 15, 20 colors. I've, I've gone back and bought more and more a few times. In fact, 
I'm going back to where I bought these shirts in a couple of weeks on my way to America. And if they have more, I'm going to buy more. I have the exact same shirt. The shirt is like $3.50 or something. The price changes where I live. And because of the exchange rates, I'm not exactly sure. It's always under $5. And I have about 20 of these. It's all I need. It's a simple solid color shirt. And sometimes people see it and they think it's a $100 shirt, but it's not. <laughs> it's a simple, maybe it's elegant. I don't know. It's a simple V-neck shirt that, come, that fits on my frame and comes in lots and lots of jaunty colors. So I can wear a different color every day. So it looks like I own lots and lots of shirts, but I don't. It's one shirt, many colors. And this is how I've lived my life before. When I was uh, on the dating scene, I had bought the exact same shirt, which unfortunately they canceled, but I bought the exact same shirt at Express in, again, a dozen colors. I had this great shirt, the Mark II. They canceled it because they stopped making clothes for fat guys and they switched to only making skinny fit clothing. And so the shirt that I love, probably one of the best shirt designs in the last 20 years, they canceled. And boy, boy, was I disappointed. What a waste. I hate when a company makes a great product and they cancel it. What can you do? When I was a kid, I wore the same pair of shoes for 10 years. I kept buying shoes that looked exactly the same until they canceled making that look. I don't even remember if they were Nikes or Reeboks or something like that, but I would always have the same looking shoe. So I am someone who likes certain areas of consistency. I'm revealing some things about myself that are a little bit weird so that you can feel more comfortable with the things about you that are weird. How many things do you have that you'll never wear again? How about this one? These are my skinny jeans for when I get skinny again. Oh, we all have those. So we have all this stuff that we don't use, but we're hoping someday to be able to use again. How many people have camping equipment haven't camped in five years? That's a tough one. I don't know where my tent is. I haven't camped in a long time, but I like knowing I have it there just in case I need it. I actually do like tent stuff, but I'm not going to tell my kids. Oh my gosh, <laughs> too hard. My tent, plus my tent's a one-man small tent, more of a festival by yourself tent, but... These are things that you can think about. How about this? Is it for you or someone else? Are you holding on to something for someone else or in the hopes that someday someone will need it? That's a sign that you're getting a little further up that hoarding trail. Oh, this is just in case someday my kids need it. Now, there are certain things that fit in that category and it's correct. Two months ago, I needed my birth certificate in order to get married here. And I go, my birth certificate? I've never seen that. My mom still had it in her safe. Amazing. She sent it to me. I had to get the original too. Very nervous transporting my original birth certificate around the world. Risky. But it got here. Hand delivery from one friend to another friend to another friend handed to me. These things happen. That's something that's okay to keep because it's not sentimental value. That's a real value. Someday you probably will need it. Court documents, proof of life, those things, you know, those things matter. Social security cards, driver's license, those aren't hoarding. Okay, Keeping your identity documents is not hoarding. But do you really need... How about this one? A picture of your diploma. I recently, in fact, just was looking for mine a month ago because I wanted to post a picture of it to show you guys. It was the first time I thought about it in 10 years, eight years, whenever I graduated. I don't know, it's 29. And I thought, oh, it'd be cool to have a picture of it. And now I already have a picture of it somewhere in my other computer. I've, done, I've, taken, I've scanned it before, but I have no idea where the physical thing is. Could be in my mom's house. Could be, could be in my bookkeepers. I don't know. But what's, there's no value in it. You don't have to have the actual piece of paper to show people. Sometimes you do. Man, they make you show it if you want to get like a discount on a car. That's about the only time you need it. Nowadays, though, you can show a picture. You can have digital proof. But these are the things that I look at for sentiment value. Sometimes it's guitars and other things like that. When I moved away, I eventually sold everything because keeping stuff in a storage unit, if you have a storage unit, you're a sucker because you're paying money for your stuff to have somewhere to live. And you don't even live there. You don't even get to enjoy it. Now, if you put stuff in a storage unit because they're between houses for two weeks, that's fine. That's what a storage unit's for. But I know people, they put a car in a storage unit for 10 years and they couldn't make the payments. They spent 
$10,000 on a car that's worth $4,000 and they lost the car anyways. When you're looking at your stuff, and this is one of those episodes where I'm referencing a lot of movies. There's this scene in the movie Heat, which people who like the movie Heat, they're crazy. It's not that good. They just like that it has De Niro and Pacino at the same time, whatever. The only good part of the movie is he talks about you is you have to be able to walk away in 30 seconds. When you're a criminal, especially a super criminal, you have to be able to look around a room and go, I can be out of here in 30 seconds. He's talking about not having sentimental value. When you live that life where you have to be able to escape, there are plenty of people who are in jail because of sentimental value. They couldn't let go of something they took too long to leave. Now, I, most people, <laughs> I couldn't leave my house in 30 seconds. But if I look around my house and I say, what has value to me? If the house is on fire, what would I grab? You know, the kids, of course. But of my stuff, the only thing that I would want to grab, I mean, maybe my passport, you can get a new one. It's not too hard to get a new one. I am who I say I am. My laptop, or at least my hard drive with backup stuff. Those are the three things I think about. And all three of them wouldn't be too hard to replace. Maybe my phone, so I'd have my phone number. So if I could call for help, like I need to call my parents or something and say, hey, everything's burned. I can't access my bank account for a few days. Yeah, that's probably it. Those are the only things. So I have very limited sentiment value. Even though I have a lot of stuff in the house, I got, man, we got kids. I've lived somewhere for a while. We've got a bunch of surfboards and this and that. It's measuring how important things are to you. For some people, they'll keep going back into the house to grab stuff and they eventually die. There's a lot of people that die in fires rescuing stuff, not even a cat. Guess what? There's a fire. My dog's in the house. He's got to get himself out. Maybe you think I'm a monster, but I got to raise my kids. I'm saving the kids. The dog's got to save himself. That's just me. If a cat stays in the house, it's on fire. Guess what? That's Darwin getting involved. Hmm. Maybe I'm a little bit edgy, but that's how I feel. If you're an animal, you got to save yourself. If you're a goldfish, fine. Grab the goldfish because guess what? Goldfish don't have legs. Fine. I get that. But if you're an animal that has the ability to leave, just leave. Then it becomes a choice. But I want you to think about your stuff and think about, is it controlling you? Is it affecting your decisions? Have you put money into things? Are you spending good money after bad? Because you're afraid of loss, because you have to be consistent, because you don't want to admit that you're not what you once were. These things hold us back. And these are things I went through for a very long time. I've owned lots of things that I liked owning. I like how it feels to own cool stuff. I'll admit that right now. I used to own a lot of books. I loved owning lots of books because it made me look smart. Now my books are my Kindle. In fact, I rent books. I don't own very many at all. I don't even own the books at my Kindle. So we go through changes in life. And this is what I went through that allowed me to move here. Because Serve No Master is about a lot of things. It's about making money, building a business. And it's about the ability to move to a tropical island. And part of that is leaving the stuff behind that you don't need. When I was thinking about moving to Hawaii a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, I looked at the cost of putting all of your crap into a shipping container and shipping it to Hawaii. Mainly because uh, buying a car in Hawaii is crazy more expensive than buying the mainland. Sometimes it's actually cheaper to ship your car over. But I wanted to send a boat full of crap to an island. You don't have to do that. Better get rid of everything. I don't even own a car. Right? I own a, a small scooter, small moped. I haven't driven it in months. Everyone else drives it. It's really for them to take my daughter to school, for them to go to the grocery store, for my wife and the nannies to do what they need to do. I don't have anywhere I need to go. If I want to go anywhere, I go on foot or I go by a boat. That's my life. So these things that we think we need, turns out we don't need them. Hopefully today has inspired you and you've thought about the things in your house and the things in your life. And maybe you've seen some amazing opportunities. If you have, I'd love to hear about it in the comments below. Leaving comments on my blog is your way of showing me love and giving me value. Comments on the blog are very, very, very valuable to me. They mean a lot. I read them all and I love looking at who's taking care of me and who's doing those things for me. It's one of those great ways to get on my radar. Someone's asking about how to get on my radar. That's a great way to do it. It means a lot to me. Think about who's in control of your life. Is it you or your stuff? And if it's not you, it's time to make a change. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Serve No Master. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. We'll be back tomorrow with more tips and tactics on how to escape that rat race. Head over to servenomaster.com forward slash podcasts now for your chance to win a free copy of Jonathan's bestseller, Serve No Master. All you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Serve No Master podcast. Head over to servenomaster.com backslash podcasts right now to find out how you can win a free copy of my brand new book.